Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for this time we've had in, in Peter, the blessing he has, the conciseness he has had, what he's directed us to. We'd ask that we would round it off with a, a, a real submission to what your apostle has to teach us. In your son's name, amen. Jake, there's zucchini bread right there if you want any, if you get famished midway through. Now we're, we're covering the last section of 2 Peter. It takes both sides. It looks longer than it is because I have these knockout quotes there that pushed it. But I had to keep all this together, whereas last week it was a shorter passage because the topic broke where it broke. So that's where we uh, had the natural division. Um, Peter begins here in chapter 2. Verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The hard thing with short books is they tend to get loaded, you know, into even Jude, which is X number of verses long, has so many bizarre things in those short verses. Um, the when people back when I was in Jesus people days, those days, everybody was talking about being the church of the time of the first century church and the church of the apostles and things as if that were some sort of inoculation against being stupid or an inoculation against all the falsity that has risen up over the centuries. And when the apostles are going, you know, there's false teachers out there. And this is a guarantee. Paul, I have this passage out of Acts 20 here right by the side. Paul's talking in, um, uh, to the Ephesian elders that have come down to Miletus to see him on his way back to Jerusalem. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The common concern followed Paul around, not just in an antagonistic way, uh, uh, from outside the faith, but inside. They had the Judaizers, um, they were present at the Jerusalem Council. He makes a comment that he did not give in to them for even a moment, uh, but they were there in the council. You, you, you don't always know that institutions generally have wider open doors than the invisible church. And the invisible church is the collection of all those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and the visible church tries to approximate that, you hope. But the problem is it has seminaries and it has ways that they can get in and get jobs and get standing. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly. Now, you, you wouldn't think that um, it could be false teachers secretly destructive, denying the master who bought them. It's exactly that. You, you can look at people with massive miters on their head, gold-encrusted, denying the deity of Jesus Christ. 
you know, it's recommending every amount of immoral behavior. Uh, and all of them well-established in the ranks. All of them well-established in the ranks. The, the Methodist recently, yesterday, I think, um, suspended a Methodist pastor who had performed a gay wedding in his church for his son. The Methodists, they don't suspend anybody. <laughs> you almost you think they'd applaud, but you know, the, you, you know that every one of these actions has not been merely because of modernism or it's always because that there is an engaging quality to power. Religion is a path to power. People love power. They love being in control of other people. And they want to be able to say something different than what has been said. And they don't want to deliver you over to the Holy Spirit. They want to deliver your soul to you, to them, the teacher. And many will follow, verse 2, their licentiousness, because it's going to not just reflect in denying the master who bought them, but it's going to reflect also in their moral condition. You can't... I was reading somebody today talking about how, in so many cases, the very things that make for good church establishment and leadership also, for a bad man, make for very major vulnerabilities in terms of morality. Because they've got all the things that attract people. And they want all the perks and benefits of power. Like every CEO or every political leader. And if you're not there serving the Lord Christ, you're serving yourself in some way, you're gathering people to follow themselves, disciples to themselves, licentiousness is going to be a problem. And because of them, the way of truth will be reviled. And that's a warning throughout the New Testament that righteous behavior on the part of the believers, even if they persecute you, it will still redound to the credit of God and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. They will, they will see that they are hurting someone righteous. Even when they killed the Christ, they knew they were killing someone righteous. And that's where we want to be. Not that we always, it's not applause only if they applaud us, but sometimes even when they stone us, it's done in an applause sense. But certainly the sins of the church come back and haunt us every time you're out evangelizing and you hear from somebody all of their, their litany of objections they have to the moral behavior of the church from priests molesting children, to the Crusades, to the Spanish Inquisition, and stuff that I'm not to blame for, and I don't even really think the church is to blame for, but because of false teaching, taking off, the false teachers took off a chunk of the church, and that apostasy, whatever degree, to whatever century, they made, um, they made the world recognize them as the church, and then they failed morally, and the word of God and the way of truth is reviled. And in their greed, you say, you got, what we got here? We've got identity of Christ issues, we've got licentiousness issues, and you have greed issues. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. From of old, their condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. Now, I want, we say, well, you know, here we are, we hope that in this Bible study, we're not really dealing with a false teacher. We hope that. 
and we hope that in Moscow we don't really have grotesquely false teachers. There may be. Uh, but it doesn't seem like would, nobody, nobody's in a state about it. And so we're saying, what's the application? What are we, you know, anytime you go through the word, you're looking for what's the practical value of what we're dealing with. What I, what I want you to sort of spot is what is the apostle's direction? What, do we, what are we supposed to do with this information? Because it doesn't strike me that, that was, for them it was all about how should the churches pull together and create a confession or a creed or an affirmation or whatever you want or set up courts by which they would try these heretics or whatever whatever it is. It wasn't it didn't seem you just sort of watch out for that. There and don't worry, God is going to destroy them. Their destruction, their condemnation and their destruction. Suppose waiting for them. And then he reassures us of that point. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven other persons, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were to be ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. He says, okay, let me give you a few points in history. The fall of the angels before the flood. Uh, the flood itself, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and uh, the rescue of, well, from Sodom. If the other questions, verse 4, was if God did not spare, verse 5, if he did not spare, if by turning the cities in verse 6 and 7, and if he rescued, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial, point 1, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He collects those two things because that's what he's about primarily with these false teachers. And that's where the illustrations he gives you from the past. The rejection of right authority and the pursuit of, you might say, um, sexual behavior that crosses certain lines. He says especially that. Not only that, but especially this. And you say, well, 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 well what, why are you saying, we can see that with Sodom, we know that was the case there. But why with the angels? Well, he's tracking right along with Jude in this portion. And Jude addresses these sorts of, these two things directly, um, almost to the point where we say they might be, have just been come from coffee together and wrote their books, uh, having talked it over. Uh, verse 6 of Jude in this pullout, And the angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal change in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, and if you look at any translation or any Greek on the matter, says this it says the same crime was committed by the angels as was committed by Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that the angels were homosexual, but likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust. 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The angels that formerly did not obey in the days of Noah, those are the ones that in Genesis it has them breeding with the daughters of men and producing the Nephilim. They went after strange flesh. The sodomites in their homosexuality went after strange flesh. And that was the lust of defiling passion on one side, especially those who indulge there, and uh, despise authority. It says in Jude, um, um, when it says they did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling, um, there is this uh, turning against the power that, or the, the, the authority that God should have had in their life. Um, the, the rejecting authority, despising authority, is not having the right understanding of obedience to the things higher than yourself. Now, what's interesting here is that Jude writes about it and says, you know, you shouldn't despise authority this way. In fact, you shouldn't even despise Satan. Okay, the Christians who make mock of Satan, uh, even at the beginning of Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis quotes, I think, a bit of Luther about uh, God, Satan not abiding being mocked. Well, you're not supposed to mock him, because even the archangel Michael would not mock the devil. It says, the Lord rebuke you. We can disapprove of the authorities. We can think the glorious ones have sinned. Matter of fact, this is all about the angels who sinned, but we may not revile them. We may not mock them. It, it shows that you don't... This is what happens when a person turns away from, you might say, the sensibility of a hierarchical model and turns to what he's left with, his own independence, he starts to measure his world by what he wants to think and what he wants to create and what kind of church he wants to have, not what he's told to have by the scriptures, by the apostles, or by the things in, in charge of his life. These teachers, these teachers, he says, Bold and willful, they are not afraid to revile the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. So you see that Peter and Jude are tracking exactly. Um, uh, Jude actually gives the encounter with uh, Michael and, and, and uh, Satan over it. But revile, a reviling judgment is not part of it. It's the Lord rebuke you. But these, these false teachers, verse 12, like irrational animals creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in the same destruction with them. Oddly enough, they'll be destroyed in the same destruction with those other glorious ones who rebelled against God, not minding their proper authorities, not keeping their proper position. So, at the same time, um, you know, we sometimes think that for us to obey an authority, any authority, boss or king or whatever, they have to be righteous, or we have to think they're righteous. And, you know, you, you can think that Satan is very wicked. You can think that all these angels are wicked. But you keep your tongue between your teeth. You do not. You, you show the proper deference. You understand authority. Um, I, I always refer to the Roman centurion that Christ spoke with, where he says, I am one set under authority. I know when I say go to one, he goes, and to another come, and he comes. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. He says, no greater faith have I found in Israel 
that kind of acknowledgement didn't mean Caesar was good. He was far from good. But you obey your commands. And when you can't obey your commands, it's because a higher authority has commanded you otherwise. When Daniel spoke to Darius, he said, O king, live forever. He respected the king, though the king had told him not to pray. And he took his punishment. But the king... Um, but he was going to obey his God before he was going to obey King Darius. So you, it's a very tidy, the hierarchical model, though complex, is very tidy. And But people in a modern state, not just in the first century, but as you get down to the modern age, you know, post the Enlightenment and all the rest, there's all sorts of uh, philosophies that are cutting people free to follow their own urges, to saying, you know, you're special. You're the one that matters in your cosmos. Everybody gets to be right. Everyone gets to have a truth of their own. Everyone needs to make something of themselves. Um, as a, Frank Cheng told me that there's a poll that 70% of American college students think they're in the top 10%. <laughs> so there's a problem, we shall say. But they, they, they revile in matters of which they're ignorant. I remember learning this, remembering my Baptist upbringing where we used to sing in Sunday school, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. <laughs> sit on attack, sit on attack. Yeah. And I, I think I was in high school when I came across this passage, I'm going, and I asked my dad, I said, oh, should we not be doing this? You know, is this not? He said, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, but the, the idea that people think that they are they get shrill and challenging, and, and they think that that's how they should fight battles with anyone they disagree with, is, is make fun of them. Or make, uh, it's just a dangerous thing when you're dealing with rank above you. Um, uh, in, even in our physical and human relationships, I don't, if I'm under authority, I can, I don't have to say they're good or pretend they're good. I can say they're wicked beyond human imagination, but they're above me. You know that's the. Uh, but they're going to be destroyed with the same destruction with those who had done these awful things, suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. These are people in the midst of Christian circles. These are not the frat boys. This is not the dorms. This is not John's Alley. This is churchmen. These are people who are cutting things open. Now, we may have different opinions about what sort of liberty the Christians are under. I have a great degree of liberty. But uh, um, somehow there is a rejection of spiritual authority. There is, a, there is a, an embrace of our own uh, passions across certain lines, lines that God has set very clearly. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a dumb ass spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. A little more information comes to us. We're, <clears throat> you know, if you throw in those things about angels breeding with the daughters of men and homosexuals and 
the thing gets a pretty, you know, the whole passage gets a little steamy. And you throw Balaam, the son of Beor, in there, who is a non-Jewish prophet from uh, Padanaram up north, uh, the, where you were stationed, back up in the Carchemish area. Um, and uh, he had been brought in to curse the people of Israel um, uh, when on, their, on their journeys up from Egypt. And he was brought down. He was not able to do it. He could only bless them. And it just drove his uh, uh, patron up a wall. But the interesting thing here is it lets you know that they, they like this is ba <coughs> Balaam's error. Loving gain from wrongdoing. Willing to sell out his power um, for the benefit of what money is. Money is, the, you might say, my desires condensed. Because, as it says in Ecclesiastes, money answers everything. Money is a means, a transactional means. I can, a medium of transfer of my urges. I can walk into any store and get the kind of candy bar I like. But what was interesting, I went back to look at numbers. I have a little verse here. It was one portion. Right when the ass straightens him out. Right when it says, the dumbass spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So well, this, what, did the, what, did the, what did the ass say? And the angel of the Lord, um, he, he required, the ass uh, tells him about the angel of the Lord and then he is able to see. And the angel says, uh, said to Balaam, go with the man, but only, but, but only the word which I bid you, that shall you speak. And I was thinking about that in terms of the basic question, what are we doing with this information? I've got angels falling from heaven, I've got sodomites in central uh, Middle East, I have got uh, a, a, a disobedient prophet, I've got people in the nether gloom chained up to slabs of obsidian till the great day. I mean, we've got a pretty wide-reaching uh, um, image. What am I supposed to do with it all? Should the church get all worked up and create, you know, call a council and set aside our differences and try to do something about this false teaching? I'm thinking of this, and I was thinking of the passage uh, back in Acts that I read at the beginning, Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's... You know, Paul didn't set any system in place. He warned them. So there's going to be false teachers. Some of you are going to be false teachers, he was telling these guys. And his commendation was to commend them to the word and the grace of God. Because that's able to build you up. Balaam, when he's restrained, is told not to go beyond what the Lord spoke through him. Not, did not say more than what God told him. You start to realize that an awful lot of that's going on. He's Christ says it a number of times in his ministry. I don't say anything except the Father, what the Father tells me to say. Mm -hmm. Paul and Apollos, I've applied this to, you, to us for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And that's actually a much simpler task than calling an ecumenical council and burning somebody at the stake, which generally happened. Um, one, you end up having some big war at the, at the council because everybody doesn't get along. You have generally a, uh, people very miffed and storming out of sessions. We're not, we're not told that this huge problem People in the church denying Jesus Christ, living a life of adultery and greed, 
It doesn't tell us to go put some institutional answer together for this. It tells us to watch out for it. Watch out for it. Know what's going on. Don't fall into that error. And hold yourself fast. At, at the end of the Jude passage, uh, I have it bolded down here at the bottom in verse 19. It is these who set up divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. There's a real almost, the, the, the absence of advice about how to set up the logistics of, a, of church action is incredible to me. How personal and individual the instruction is. That really the only salvation for anyone is their own walk and their faithful walk with the things of the, and the source they have for that faithful walk. That they're not following one of these false teachers that's full of adultery and full of greed. And, and when you point something out like that to people, you say, have you noticed all the cars? You know, there's nothing wrong with cars. Fifteen might be a problem, and if they're all Rolls Royces, it might be a big problem. But is there, is there doctrine that starts to justify greed? Is there doctrine that starts to justify adultery? Um, so, if you stopped and said, God wants you to God wants you to deal with it more this way, or at, let's just say at least this way. At least this way. That, that an institutional response to what you think is a heresy is probably in no way a good idea if you do not have this personal response committed to the word of God and to God himself, building yourself up in the most holy face, not speaking more than what the Lord had told you. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped from the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. Now it's hard to tell whether or not he's talking about those who are misled by these false teachers or the false teachers themselves or both of them inclusive. But the whole motive force is in Christianity is not a power game between our church leadership and their negative church leadership, who wins the day and who gets the votes and who, that's not what wins. It has to be that Christians who are concerned, the reason we came to Christ was to escape the passions of the flesh. We don't, didn't want to live in the error of living by our own standards anymore. And then we run into a teacher who promises us freedom. You saw it a lot in the Jesus people days, Various cults would kick up where, uh, you know, these hippies, their brains were slightly toasted from the drugs anyway, but 
they'd get caught up in something like a Charlie Manson thing, or the Children of God was another, was a big one, uh, David Berg. Um, of just very, very, very bad people. Uh, they turned all the women into prostitutes, and that's how they would evangelize. It was called flirty fishing. And uh, they had tracks that would teach them how to do it. And it was uh, remarkably evil. And um, they finally had to flee to South America, and I still think they are down there. But these things exist where someone uses the, the gratification of, you might say, spiritualized power in people's lives to then turn the person on a dime and push them right back into the sins that they were set free from. If nothing else, we should realize that our Christian faith, that as we're guiding it, there was a reason you were called out of darkness. And that should be the continued trajectory, that you become more holy, not less so. You don't start to, uh, uh, on the excuse that it's freedom, uh, grant yourself sin. And again, that we have a, not an individualistic, but an individual. We're not fighting for individualism. We are being individuals. We know that we'll stand, each one of us, it's it's a name of individuals that's in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the names of individuals in the Book, the book of Works. It's the name of, a, of, of not your church or not your theology, but of you. And so your, you might say, our own you is, needs to be um, framed up, valuing the right things as we should value it, uh, that we know where real protection comes from against false teaching. And a lot of it is just keeping everything where it's supposed to be when you came into Christ. Um, when it tells you, you know, what does it say in um, Paul, it says, uh, as you received him, so live in him. Um, it, it, it's a continuation of what you have. Galatians, it says, uh, who has bewitched you, that section, um, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing with faith? Having, are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, you're now ending with the flesh. It doesn't suddenly turn around and do something else. It doesn't do something legalistic, and it doesn't do something licentious, because you were set free from the law, and you were set free from sin. And you, that trajectory is going to continue. I, I will not fall back under the law, under some fear that immoral teachers are going to start leading my youth astray in the church, and our kids are going to get caught up in some sort of grotesque wickedness, so we better, you know, drop the hammer on that. Well, that's just another thing that we turned aside into, not licentious, but legal, and that is just as destructive to Christ as the licentiousness. But Galatians is about the legalism, First Peter is about the licentiousness. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, now this is the second, this is now the second letter that I've written to you, beloved. And in both of them, I've aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Once you step into a, you might say, a personal, I, I don't want to say like evangelicals often did, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, because that's almost devoid of meaning by now. Um, you're, you're stepping into a... These are personal instructions. 
we take them personally or we don't take them personally. If we take them, this is what's wrong with my church today. No, is, this, is, is it right or wrong in you? This is a way of your sincere mind has been aroused by this reminder that these predictions have been given uh, by the apostles. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, that whole idea of following their own passions is the distinction between the person who is in the lust of defiling passion and rejecting authority. You have to reject authority, and when you reject authority to guide you, you have to have an inertial force to guide you, and your passions are what then become your guide. It's, you are usually doing it. You're rejecting the authority to get the privilege of getting the car keys from Jesus Christ so that you could drive where you want to go. But they're going to raise questions to you. You have to understand this. They're, they're, it's going to happen. They're going to raise questions that call into account your belief in the preceding testimony if God did not spare, if he rescued, the Lord knows how to. Okay, that's what that you were assured of that in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he says they're going to challenge that. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. They will point to the status quo and say, see, the sun came up again this morning, just like always. Life is just this endless circle. Sure, we live and die, but that's really like all these you know, apocalyptic warnings about what God's going to do. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth formed out of water and by means of water through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They seem to forget this fact that cataclysmic, apocalyptic shifts in things have happened. Have you noticed that nobody is, it's almost all the time on TV now because there's so many channels, they're talking about that asteroid that's going to hit us. Some asteroid's going to hit us and destroy the, the world as we know it because it destroyed the dinosaurs. And it's like, you know, you guys are talking like you're biblical scholars, that, that last one that hit the Yucatan back X number of million years ago, that just ended that, that Jurassic period and, and changed the whole world. They have this, this great calamity in the past, and now they're afraid another one's going to come. It's going to eventually come, and what are we going to do when it does come? Well, that's what the Christians ought to be doing. Say, yeah, you do know that this has happened before. God made the world out of nothing, and then he destroyed the world once before. By the same word, verse 7, the heavens and the earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, it's not just Bible talk when you say the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It is a primary ethical demand that you even hear from non-believers. We were talking about it last night at the Lewis reading. Um, there, somebody was responding to a question from a non-believer about, well, what do you do about killing all the Amalekites? And I said, well, you know, make up your mind what your complaint's going to be. 
because on one hand you're complaining that God never does anything about the wicked people in the world and then God does something about the wicked people in the world and you complain that he did something. The Amalekites were wicked. Their wickedness was complete. He had them all killed. Tell us what you really want. You know, the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men is the logical place that everyone's, everyone's ethics knows is missing from any ethic. They blame God for not doing it when everything looks like all the wicked are getting away with stuff. The lightning bolt has not hit Kim Kardashian on the head like we all pray it would. But there it goes. She goes on from bad to worse, living out her life. Now, he is just assuring us that what has happened, and it's not, it's not, it's not a, the faith that it will happen, the blessed hope, is rested in judgment and destruction as much as it is in mercy and in glory. Because it is the message that comes about to answer everybody's choices in life. Those that have picked God's mercy, well and good. Those that have not, not so well. But we need to remember it by faith. It's the whole idea that hope that is seen is not hope. You're not given. He doesn't get, just like he didn't give you a, 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 a logistical plan for a church council about what to do about false, false teachers. He doesn't even give you very much information about St. Peter's view of the end of the world. People will try to grab a few things. It looks like there is a fire, and it looks like things are destroyed. And people are trying to piece together this picture that will be a clear enough picture that they can believe it. Don't ask for that, because that's not hope. It says in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope. Now, when you try to draw a picture out of all the little threads of reference, Thessalonians and, and the, whenever, Book of Revelation, whatever you want to believe is end times stuff, and try to make yourself a picture as you're doing it to try to make something you can believe in, something you, you can have um, a Kincaid painting done of that you can hang on your wall and look at it and says, that's glory and that's what I'm waiting for. And as soon as I know, hope in it like Peter is suggesting without, he just said, it did happen, it will happen. We know it can happen, because we all agree it did happen. It's not a matter of if, if it can. We know it can. Eight people survived. Do you realize, somebody I remember reading William Morris on this, uh, Henry Morris on this, uh, years ago uh, on his Genesis flood, where he was dealing with the population base before the flood, and the amount, 1,700 years between Adam and Noah, and what, with an average of six children per family, average generation of 40 years, there could be 23 billion people on the planet. Because remember, they were living 900 years. 23 billion. We only have 7 billion now, 8 maybe, 7, something like that. And we think we're, oh, so many people. Can you imagine? 20 billion people. Eight people survived. God can do this. And he's promised to do it. These are the words of the prophets, the words of the apostles. Now, but, I, but I'm doing it by faith, knowing that my God 
must be this for righteousness to exist, for evil to exist, for all the things that they want to do and all the things they complain about God not doing. All this exists because of his judgment. But it's his judgment. And it's his destruction. Now, he also tells you, do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's one of those awful verses that somebody then runs off and starts measuring out any reference to a thousand you know, days here. Well, it must be a thousand years. It's like it's some sort of math equation that God gave them. Um, this is how math works in heaven. Um, no, he's talking about God not keeping... He clarifies, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. This is... Our time references don't matter to God. He doesn't... Uh, we, we know the difference about when we're waiting for the wife to come out of the mall. It's interminable, you know, that it never ceases, that, that souls could die in torment during that time. And... Uh, get the point? I am here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, did you hear me? I am here. We know that the circumstance really was only a couple minutes. We know that you can get caught up in, in, in whatever thing. We know that it's all, not all emotional, but it's changed by the what you're waiting for. And, and for God, it's, it's the big picture, the absolute maker of all things. But he's forbearing toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there's a number of reprimands in that. I remember initially thinking that there's this reprimand, you know, he's waiting for you because you're not evangelizing the lost, you swine. And he doesn't wish that any should perish, and he's waiting for you to do something about it. But also, we have to realize that... Uh, here we are, and because God did not answer the prayers of the saints um, in the 1800s, we have a chance to live and enjoy glory. The, the, that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. Um, you know, that at one point, you know, I, everybody was saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, back in the 80s, and, and some of you would have been lost eternally if those prayers had been answered. There's a forbearance that, that is waiting for um, the good God wants to have happen. He wants the mercy to be dished out. He probably emotionally wants the judgment to be dished out too. That's what an element of, um, it's almost like the mercy is an action and the judgment is an emotion. <laughs> it seems like he hates the sin more than he loves dishing out mercy. But but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Pretty clear. Doesn't tell you anything about when. Doesn't tell you uh, just that it'll be like a thief, sneak up on you. Uh, but the cosmos will be gone. Now, we're wishing that the next few paragraphs would be said, what I mean by this is, I'm meaning those metaphorically, you know, or I'm meaning them literally. He doesn't tell us anything of the kind. 
Uh, it's almost like he just sort of expects us not to care so much in the way we tend to care. They tell us a Mayan calendar was carved ending in October or whatever it was supposed to end in, and it came and went, and everybody was on again, like all the other things on the news about the asteroid, they were believing everything a Mayan carved down on a piece of rock. We are very conscious of the hopelessness of the end of all things. As Lewis writes this great, great essay called Funeral of a Great Myth, where he deals with the materialist myth of the end of all things and how absolutely empty, pointless, and blank and dark without it being actually dark because no one will be alive to know it'll be dark. No animals, no life, no light, dead. The universe will be gone. That's what they're... And everybody sort of feels this awful, awful aspect of what we, we could... No place to run. We actually can't run from the asteroid strike. Or if the Mayans were right, we can't run from the end of the world. Or So we, we get caught up in this great fear of death personally and the fear of death corporately. But he actually tells us, verse 11, <coughs> Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what he's going to tell us what... Oh, he's not. What sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. He keeps throwing that stuff in there like we don't want the story told or we don't... We don't we Again, he's not feeling an, under any obligation to produce an eschatology for you. He even asked the question, well, now what? How do you feel about this? How should you feel about this? What ought you do? Well, I think I should be charting this out onto some big piece of paper so I can find when the rapture happens and when the tribulation happens and when this dispensation's over, if you're a dispensationalist. Actually, it seems to suggest lives of holiness and godliness, but verse 13, but according to his promise, promise we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, heck, there's a heaven at the end, too. Therefore, beloved, he's asked the question in verse 11. What sort of persons ought you be? Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Drat. Wouldn't I be at more peace if I had a chart of the end times? <laughs> Or I could prove to everybody who ever wrote a book that disagreed with my view that they were wrong. Wouldn't I feel better? No, it's really about holiness and godliness. It's spot blemish issues. It's at peace issues. And, <coughs> and count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. As we all have to do. That's what made me think about it when I was thinking back in verse 9. Forbearing towards you. Your salvation hung on it. And so, as we toy with those notions that our fictional crafting of end times views creates for our, um, you might say, our, our honest Christian Bible excitement, we get to, when people talk about Satan, they get all Bible excited. When they talk about the end times, they get all Bible excited. And um, 
Now there's stuff in the Bible about Satan and the end, but they don't seem to have that same range of excitement. That same kind of, like Lord of the Rings dorks have, you know, uh, who, all about Star Wars, or all about Lord of the Rings, or all about, you know, whatever game system they're into now. Christians can get that way. We always knew when we did Bible studies on campus many years ago, that if you had one on the Revelation of John, you'd pack the place. You could, you could hang one out on 1st John, you'd get 10, 15. Uh, Revelation, bingo, 60, 80. Everybody loves those theories. Everybody loves that. We're supposed to be zealous to be found without spot or blemish. It's what, who am I when it happens? Not what is God doing, because God's coming back. Peter's assured you of that. This is going to all be ended, and you're going to be looked at individually and closely. Are you going to be at peace? Are you going to be without spot or blemish? And then he lets us know, So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, like he forgave him for the little Galatians uh, issue, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's just such a nice personal note. One, you say, ah, oh, they knew each other, they cared for each other. Peter knew he wasn't a rocket scientist, and Paul probably was. <laughs> that Paul's writing, you know, you go through... You go through Romans and you see this wonderful argument laid out on the nature of the gospel. Peter, you know, short, tidy, full of it letters, you know, and, and he knows that, that, yeah, Paul's got some concepts there that are beyond a lot of people and um, hard to understand. And people, when they find hard to understand, and one basic rule in exegesis or biblical interpretation is... Um, uh, the idea of let the, the clear define the unclear. And more people know they can get more mileage by claiming the unclear is this story they can make up for it because it's unclear. And then they go around with their unclear theory interpreting, reinterpreting clear passages to serve the, the interests of their unique idea. You go with the, you don't twist the scriptures. J Dr. James Sire University Press, a number of years ago, wrote uh, Scripture Twisting. I recommend the book. Uh, it's basically on how bizarre groups will misread the Scriptures to come up with their ideas, what methods. It's not about certain groups, it's about the methods they use to twist the Scripture. And I ran into James Sire, uh, speaking, I was speaking at a conference in some place, and he was the plenary speaker, so I was chatting with him because he knew my dad. And uh, he used to live here. James Sire used to go to All Souls when it was a Baptist church, back when he was at the grad college at WSU. Um, you know, back up. It's a small world, the Christian world. Uh, side note, people say, it says, as they do the other scriptures, Peter is inadvertently probably tallying up in the writings, Paul's writings, you know, that as they do the other scriptures, he's saying they've twisted Paul's letters like they do the other scriptures, and that people will use that as an argument for the 
sort of self-aware. These things we're writing are intended to be scriptural. You, there, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware, lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. So beware. There's the advice. You're supposed to... The end is coming. All of this is going to get cleaned up. I don't have to worry about cleaning it up. If the ungodly come to town and an ungodly popular teacher comes to my church and starts to turn people away from what I say and they take the church and the pulpit away from me, well, so that's just a church. It was just a pulpit. It's, you know, God will deal with it. Their destruction is not silent. If it really is against God, their destruction is not silent. I'm not the judge of the living and the dead. The church is not the judge of the living and the dead. God is the judge. And I can wait for that. With Christ on the cross, he was able to not revile because it said in First Peter, um, he trusted to him who judges justly. You can be very patient with people when you know they're facing a judgment that is far more coherent, clear, definite, unaffected by emotion and loss, just just, someday. So I can step aside and say, I just have to make sure I'm not carried away by the error and lose my stability. I have to be aware of how they mishandle the scripture. That's the warning with Paul. I have to be about, my task is about even knowing the end is coming and the temptation to set me aside from what God wants me to do, the temptation is to get all worked up about the storyline of the event. Not the instructions I was given, given the event. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And you can see, I've dealt with things in Christian circles long enough to know how unstable people with any other motivation than these things in Christ, if a person is always zealous to be found without spot or blemish and at peace, they are very conscious of dealing with other believers. It says that in a passage in, in uh, Jude, it is these who set up divisions. Well, I, I decide that the most important thing is the view. I were reading a book, a friend, I'm not dispensational, but a friend of mine who wanted me to be, gave me a book by somebody, Rosenthal, I think, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, I think it was called. Uh, I was completely uninterested in the book, but he had lost his position in his ministry because he moved his dating of the rapture by three and a half years. They voted him out completely. Now, <clears throat> he was probably too into it himself. They were definitely too into it. But if you were about without spot or blemish and at peace, growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your point of fellowship will be at that point. You could see it in the Lutheran, you could see it in the Reformed person, you could see it in the Baptist, you could see it in the Methodist, you could see it in the Presbyterian. You'll see these things really being there. This is what God has told you to do, and and all is, you might say, the passage itself has so many temptations to talk about fallen angels and whether they had 
relations with earthly women, and did they really produce the Nephilim? I could, you could go on for days on that stuff. Um, and you could draw lines of fellowship over it. But it's fine to draw lines of fellowship on righteousness. It's either the, the, the doctrines of, remember, they deny the master who bought them. It's fine to draw lines of fellowship on their theology of Jesus Christ. You don't believe Jesus is God? Well, see you. You know? Oh, you believe you should adultery is fine? See ya. Um, those are fine. Nobody says, oh, it's Christian unity. You're breaking Christian unity. So it might be good for us to be about those things. Not knowledge of our Lord and Savior without spot or blemish. To the day of eternity. Amen. And that's the end. Right, man. It's like a gift. <laughs> um, so we're at the end of Second Peter. Uh, credit to Jake for suggesting first and second. Uh, there will be no um, Bible studies through the holidays. We're going to be coming up with a different thing uh, in the spring just so we try to get more uh, interest in people pursuing biblical and spiritual stuff. So we're going to announce those things later as we get them all worked out. But um, you never know when Bible studies may suddenly erupt. But let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. You're very good to us, and we have sometimes wandered off the reservation. What you have told us to do in the face of our blessed hope, and we'd ask that you would protect us from false teachers, give us the wisdom to recognize them, and also that we'd be about and seeking the things individually that would make us stronger and stable. Help us each be a credit to your Son and to your kingdom. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.